Welcome to the She Who Overcomes podcast. I'm Mandy B. Anderson, and a few years ago, I started a life and business coaching company with my bestie. I'm a wife, a business owner, a coach, a speaker, and the author of the book that inspired this podcast, She Who Overcomes, Rising Out of the Ashes of Your Circumstances. I'm also training to run my first half marathon. Oh, and did I mention I'm doing all of this while overcoming a life-threatening illness called cystic fibrosis? It's true. And hey, if I can rise up, so can you. Each week on this podcast, I'll be here to encourage and equip you with the skills you need to rise up as the successful overcomer you were designed to be. So grab your coffee and let's hang out. Welcome back to the She Who Overcomes podcast. It's a brand new week and we're diving into episode five with another chapter from my book, She Who Overcomes. Chapter four is called She Tears Down Idols, and it's all about getting rid of the things that hold you back. So let's dive in. I'll never forget the day I saw him. His blue eyes made my adolescent heart skip a beat. My legs turned to mush, and suddenly, all I could think about was the blonde-haired boy whose face had just made my world stop. I didn't know his name, or his age, or anything about him, really. All I knew was that I was in love with a movie star. This seemingly harmless crush quickly turned into a full-blown obsession as I researched who my heartthrob was. Every picture I could find of him was plastered on my wall. Every magazine article that was written, I devoured it. Eventually, after 200 posters, I ran out of wall space, and it was way too much to just consume every article and keep stacks of magazines piling on my bedroom floor, so I did what any normal love-struck gal would do. I started a scrapbook. Three volumes, to be exact. After homework, I would thumb through the pages of volume one and memorize every feature and fact about this teenage boy. Through my extensive research, I discovered that he was six years older than I. It seemed a bit old considering the fact that I was only 11 at the time. However, I knew that one day the age factor wouldn't matter. At Bible camp, as I showed my best friends the beautiful volumes of scrapbooks that I had designed, I would be sure to let them know that when I was 20 and he was 26, the age wouldn't seem like such a big deal. I was completely convinced that someday, somehow, I would meet this boy and we would fall deeply in love and get married. I know, I know, you're probably thinking, Mandy, girl, what did your parents think about this obsession? That's what you're thinking, right? Well, here's the answer. They were thrilled. Okay, yes, there were times where they had to rein me in a bit as my dramatic preteen emotions threw a temper tantrum just because I'd have to miss a television episode of a show he was guest starring in. Or when one of his movies came out and... The closest movie theater was over an hour away, forcing me to have to wait until their schedule opened up. Yeah, 
I had a temper tantrum then, too. My parents had to practice parental sternness in those moments, for sure. But for the most part, they were thrilled with the idea of their daughter's obsession over an actor that she would likely never ever meet. Why would this thrill them? Because as long as I was infatuated with this boy who lived worlds away from the small town we called home, I was oblivious to the real boys who had crushes on me. It seemed like the perfect answer to any worries they had about raising a teenage daughter. Keep her attention on a boy she'll never meet, and she won't have time for the real boys down the street. Problem solved. Now, before you start thinking that I am condoning this type of obsession, we must return to the words of John in the book of Revelation. There's something important hidden within these verses that we cannot ignore. Here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Revelation 2, 12-17 from the NIV version. I'll be honest with you. When I first read these verses, I had a lot of questions. Like, who was Balaam? And what was his teaching? Who in the world were the Nicolaitans? Is that even how you say that? And are they still around today in the 21st century? And what about this hidden manna and this white stone with a new name on it? None of this made sense to me. And the questions swirled around in my head like a word tornado. Maybe you've got a word tornado swirling around in your head, too. So let's unpack this verse by answering those questions first. And then we can return to the movie star obsession situation. Okay? Okay. Who was Balaam and what were his teachings? Well, the first time we ever meet Balaam is in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25. It's a crazy story that involves a talking donkey. For real. Yes, the Bible is filled with crazy things that actually happened, and talking animals are part of it. Because of this, by the way, I'm still praying for Ajabi to start talking to me someday. I would love to hear her story of how she survived our apartment fire. Just once. It is yet to happen. Anyway, back to the point. So, 
The story of Balaam isn't a happy story. You see, he was a false prophet. Yes, he heard from God, but he also practiced the art of divination. According to Dictionary.com, divination is the practice of attempting to foretell future events or discover hidden knowledge by occult or supernatural means. This is a dangerous thing, and Balaam dabbled in it. Seriously, go read the story for yourself. Balaam's teachings included not only divination or witchcraft, but also manipulation, idolatry, and seduction. We'll talk about these more in the next chapter, but for now, all we need to recognize is that these habits do not produce overcomers. They just don't. Okay, moving on. Who were the Nicolaitans? And is that how you say it? Full disclosure, I don't have a clue. That's how I'm going to say it. So when I studied this, the Nicolaitans were a group of people who conquered and controlled others for their own purposes. If you search the internet for information on this group of people, you find that they kind of developed their own church of sorts. They worshipped idols and went against everything God set up. Are they still around today? Well, they maybe don't call themselves by that name necessarily, but there are people all over the world who practice this on a daily basis. It is a form of idolatry, and many Christians who love God and want to live for Him have even fallen into the practice of idolatry. But we'll get to that part in a moment, too. Okay, what is the hidden manna? Well, when Moses and the Israelites spent 40 years in the desert, God gave them manna every day to feed them. Theologians believe that the hidden manna in these verses symbolizes the strength and endurance that God gives Christians to sustain them in their faith. This point is going to come in handy in the coming chapters. What is the significance of the white stone with a new name on it? In biblical times, If people were accused of a crime, they would be sent to court, just like our system is set up in the United States today. Their case would be presented to a jury who would weigh in their opinions and then take a vote. Each voting member would be given two stones. The first stone, a white stone or pebble, signified a vote of innocence. The second stone, a black stone, represented a guilty verdict. The verse that talks about giving a white stone to the person who is victorious is significant because it represents Jesus telling the overcomers that they will be found innocent. His word trumps all. This verse is saying that we are set free through Jesus. The new name is also symbolic because once we ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of our lives, we become a new creation in Christ. God has made each of us to be unique, and through Jesus, we can boldly walk with confidence in that design. These are all important things to understand. Now that we have all of that confusion cleared up, let's unpack the part of this verse that focuses on the topic at hand. When we read this passage in the message version, we see the following words. Write this to Pergamum, to the angel of the church, 
The one with the sharp biting sword draws from the sheath of his mouth. Out come the sword words. I see where you live, right under the shadow of Satan's throne. But you continue boldly in my name. You never once denied my name, even when the pressure was worst, when they martyred Antipas, my witness, who stayed faithful to me on Satan's turf. But why do you indulge that Balaam crowd? Don't you remember that Balaam was an enemy agent, seducing Balak and sabotaging Israel's holy pilgrimage by throwing unholy parties? And why do you put up with the Nicolaitans who do the same thing? Enough! Don't give in to them. I'll be with you soon. I'm fed up and about to cut them to pieces with my sword-sharp words. Are your ears awake? Listen! Listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. I'll give the sacred manna to every conqueror. I'll also give a clear, smooth stone inscribed with your new name, your secret new name. Revelation 2, 12-17, the message version. Okay, if you go back and read that whole passage from this version, you'll find that overcomers stand up for specific things like truth, righteousness, and godliness. Though the word isn't used in this version, it is very clear that the main thing they are told to stand up against in this passage is idolatry. The idols of today look different than in ancient times. We don't make golden calves that we bow down to, but we often bow down to things like money, television shows, celebrities, our jobs, shopping, even food. Think about it. Which of those items take up the most space in your thoughts and actions every day? How many times do you choose them over spending time with God? How many times do you choose obsessing about them over renewing your mind according to God's word? I'm not pointing the finger here because I'm just as guilty. And maybe this is written more for myself than for anybody else. I mean, come on. I was going to marry a movie star that I never even met, all because I was being driven by an obsession. And that's just it. Anything we're obsessed with becomes a form of idolatry in our lives that we must repent of if we're serious about becoming an overcomer. Idolatry is serious stuff in God's eyes. Even if we stand up for truth and righteousness and stand firm in our faith, if we have any idolatry in our lives, it will hinder our ability to overcome the things in which God says we can. The book of Revelation is not the only place that this topic is mentioned. It's all over the Bible. For instance, we read the following in Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. This instruction sounds simple enough, right? I mean, we know that when we choose to live our lives for Christ, we obviously are saying no to other gods and other religions. When we believe God's word is the living word, these things seem obvious. In the country that I live, the United States of America, we have the freedom to choose which God to serve. 
This means that I am not forced to pray three times a day facing the east, or is it the west? I don't have golden statues in my home that I bow down to. In fact, it's easy to read this passage and think that it almost doesn't apply to me. But then I walk into my living room and I see the flat screen television mounted to the wall, and I wonder, how many times have I let that flat box dictate my life? How many times did I get tricked by the illusion of living my life through the stories of actors on shows like Grey's Anatomy or One Tree Hill or even my favorite short-lived show from the 90s that my heartthrob starred in, Sequest DSV? Yes, in this country, with so many freedoms and luxuries at our fingertips, we can easily convince ourselves that we put God Almighty first and only worship Him. But do we really? You shall have no other gods before me. We deceive ourselves by thinking we have this instruction mastered, yet we don't recognize it in the mirror. This subject of idolatry is one that I personally wish didn't exist. I don't recall whether or not idolatry existed in my life prior to my infatuation with that movie star. But here's what I do know. The day that I began to obsess over him was the day that I willingly opened the door when idolatry knocked on it. I invited it in and unpacked its bags. And as I did, it multiplied and it spread to other areas of my life as well. Over time, it held me back from God's best for my life. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, maybe you can't relate to my story of obsessing over a movie star because that's just not your thing. So I'll give you another glimpse of the idolatry that has existed in my past. And I share this with you in the hopes that it will help shed some light on any hidden idols in your own life. Remember in chapter one how I explained that my husband and I went through a season of extreme debt? Well, a few years prior to our apartment fire, I realized how dysfunctional my shopping addiction was. It is not normal to go to a store, see a pair of shoes, and then fall asleep dreaming about said pair of shoes. That's not normal at all. That is dysfunctional on so many levels. But I confess that this has happened to me on more than one occasion. In fact, I still remember to this day dreaming about a beautiful pair of crimson red boots that I wanted so badly. I dreamt about them for months. Nate ended up getting them for me for Christmas, and oh, how I loved those shoes. They died in the fire. I don't even have them anymore. There were other times where my love for shopping and shoes drove me to make bad decisions that resulted in buying a pair of pointy-toe stilettos that were a size too small just because I loved them. After wearing them for four hours at work one day, I remember going home for lunch and having to ice my feet just so I could get my swollen toes back into those shoes. How crazy is that? I totally admit it. It was nuts. 
Even though I was unaware of what I was really dealing with at the time, I knew it was serious enough that it had to be addressed because our finances and my sanity were being affected. So I put myself on something I called the shopping ban of 2008. It was a fascinating experience that to this day my friends still recall. I wrote the following in my journal about the lessons that God taught me just within a few short months of applying this important ban of shopping. July 7th, 2008. In January of this year, I made a vow to stop doing the one thing that brought me instant gratification, not to mention instant debt. Shopping. I decided that this would be the year I cure the shopping addiction that had been growing over the last several years. You know, the addiction where you actually dream of that pair of red stiletto heels until finally they live in your well-stocked closet, yet you don't wear them for fear of ruining them in the rain or the mud. Or that constant need to buy every single shade of gray suit you see at your very favorite store because it will look amazing on you even though you already have three other gray suits and they're now collecting dust because you don't have enough reasons to wear them. Yep, I had a problem. And since recognizing that problem is the first step in recovery, I figured the second step would be to stop cold turkey. So, I have been adhering to the following guidelines for seven months now. One, unless it is a necessity, I don't need to buy it. Clothes, shoes, earrings, necklaces, what have you. However, makeup does not count because that, in my world, is a necessity and has never been my addiction. And two, the only exception to this shopping ban is if someone gives me money and puts stipulations on it, such as when it can be used and what it can be used for. That being said, this past Saturday, after several months of steering clear of the mall and any sales that would tempt me, I went shopping. I was given some money from my grandma last week and was told that I can't save it, but instead I need to buy myself some clothes. To this day, I'm not sure if she was trying to tell me something about my wardrobe, but I wasn't about to waste this opportunity. So there I was in the mall, cash in hand and ready for the hunt. There was just one problem. I wasn't finding a lot of prey out there to add to my collection. You see, since I've stopped shopping, I've stopped dreaming about things that I don't need. I've stopped obsessing over every cute outfit in a catalog, and I've found that I am beginning to be more picky about what ends up in my wardrobe. I have come to care more about what I spend my money on. And I have to say, this shopping ban is something I wasn't sure I could pull off. But I'm finding that the changes in my attitude and more importantly, the changes in my heart, are well worth the sacrifice of having the perfect outfit. God is teaching me so much during this time of no shopping that I don't even have the desire to shop. I just don't think about it anymore. And you know what? It's very liberating. So reading that, I realized that at the time of the shopping ban of 2008, I didn't recognize this bad habit for what it was. Idolatry. I just thought it was another addiction, much like my movie star obsession. 
and it was something that needed to be addressed. Please hear me when I say this. Any addiction is a form of idolatry because it takes your eyes off of God and it traps you into a lifestyle of being controlled by the very thing that you are addicted to or obsessed with. And that is the very essence of idolatry. According to Dictionary.com, idolatry has two definitions. The first is obviously the worship of idols, which can be any person or thing regarded with blind admiration, adoration, or devotion. The second is excessive or blind adoration, reverence, or devotion. We must not only understand what idolatry is, but we also must recognize the dangers of idolatry and be intentional about getting rid of it. If we don't, it will hold us captive. It will hold us back from everything God has for us. Getting rid of idolatry is a continual process. We must reassess on a regular basis where the focus of our heart is. Ask God to show you the things that are holding you back. What are you holding on to so tightly that it clouds your vision to what God has for you? These are the questions we must be persistent in asking ourselves. In the weeks following our apartment fire, I marveled at how liberating it was to not be held captive by my possessions. Losing everything you own and starting over with just the basics, it teaches you an important lesson in what it means to be ruled by things. Often when people would ask how we were doing, they would end their sentence with the words, I just can't imagine what it would be like to lose all my stuff. That's kind of sad, isn't it? I will admit that, yeah, there are some sentimental items that I will always miss because the memories attached to them are ones that I hold dear to my heart. But when it really comes down to it, my life is so much better now that I know what it's like to be set free from the bondage of material things. I'm actually thankful for the fact that we didn't have apartment insurance because if we had, the responsibility of trying to remember every item for documentation would have been overwhelming. Instead of combing through my memories of our stuff in the weeks after the fire, I was able to spend time with God. I was able to allow Him to rebuild my foundation on heavenly things rather than material ones. Idols only slow us down and reroute our focus to things that do not matter. God has so much more for us. God is calling us to be overcomers who tear down the idols so that we can be free to move forward in the life He has planned for us. He is asking us to stand firm in our faith and stand up for what is right, even when it doesn't look like what everyone else is doing. Sometimes that means turning the television off and listening to a podcast or reading our Bible instead. Other times it means avoiding the mall so we don't get sucked into buying another pair of shoes that we really don't need. Most often, it means reassessing our habits on a daily basis 
to make sure that nothing hinders us from God's best for our lives. Recently, I noticed this ugly thing called idolatry show up in my life again. It was a little tricky to identify, yet there it was, plain as day and right under my nose. Or rather, right under my thumbs. My Facebook app had become a form of idolatry for me. It wasn't so much Facebook on my iPad or my computer. For some reason, I could implement healthy boundaries with those devices. However, on my phone, I found myself mindlessly scrolling through my newsfeed the moment I woke up and hundreds of times throughout the day. I would sense God telling me, Mandy, spend some time with me, in my word, before you start your day. And my response would be, in a minute, God. And before I knew it, 30 minutes had passed and I was still scrolling away mindlessly. It was beyond distracting. Not only that, it fed fear and chaos into my mind as I read news stories of all the horrible things happening in the world. It also made me late and behind schedule almost every day. I felt frazzled, and precious time with God was constantly stolen from me because of it. Healthy boundaries need to be put in place to protect our minds, our bodies, and our souls from the treacherous aftermath of idolatry. One of the ways that I erased the idolatry of social media was by deleting the apps that were the problem from my phone. I also put my Bible app in a prominent place on my phone so that I could see it right away in the morning. It felt a bit strange at first to feel my fingers sliding through my screen in search of the Facebook app, but eventually it got easier. And the chains of bondage fell off within hours of making the decision to let it go. When it comes down to it, overcomers don't give in. They don't ride the fence. Instead, they stand firm when others crumble. They stand up for what they believe when others crack. God warns us to stand firm in our faith and boldly stand up against idolatry. In order to do this, we've got to learn to set boundaries so we can serve God wholeheartedly. We've got to be willing to understand our obsessive tendencies enough to admit them, repent of them, and then be intentional about not going back down that path. That's how an overcomer persists in getting rid of the things that hold her back. And when she does this, God gives her strength and endurance to keep overcoming when new idols threaten to hold her back. God sets her free and gives her the verdict of innocent. She will begin to notice things like manipulation and idolatry faster than ever before. And then she'll quickly redirect her course according to God's will. That's what happens when you choose to become a she who overcomes by tearing down the idols. Maybe you have struggled with similar obsessions and addictions in your own life. Or maybe the idolatry that has been hiding in plain view is something entirely different. Maybe you've had stronger addictions than the one that I've had. But no matter what, today can be a new start. 
Let this moment, right now, be the moment where you rise up and take a stand against the idolatry that has taken your eyes off of God's best for you. Let this moment, right now, be your fresh start to tear down the idols and rise out of the ashes as the overcomer you were designed to be. We will be back with another episode for you next week. For now, if you would take a moment and write a review or subscribe to the podcast, that means the world to those of us who work so hard to produce every single episode. For more information, go to BigBlueCouchCoaching.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram under Big Blue Couch Coaching. A shout out to my hubby, Mr. Nate Anderson, for editing this podcast. And most importantly, I hope that you found something today that gave you the courage to rise up and overcome that thing that you've been facing. You're stronger than you think. I'll see you next week.